Hello, everybody, and welcome to LSE. Um, for those of you coming outside, welcome to LSE Full Stop. For um, the, our students, thank you for showing up on a really wet and rainy Friday night. It's quite exciting for me to be here on International Women's Day. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Grace Lorden, and I'm an associate professor here at the LSE in behavioral science. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why men and women still choose different occupations and also why men and women still earn differential rates of pay for the same work. So it's really interesting for me to have three um, female leaders or leaders full stop here tonight that we can ask some questions that we might not, not otherwise get to ask. Um, this event is um, Women in the City. Um, so women, this event is Women in the City is launching LSE's Libraries Women's Work Programme to mark the century of Sex Disqualification Act in 1919, where legal barriers were removed so that women could enter professions such as law and accountancy. So back then, it wasn't a given that we could actually choose the type of jobs that we can choose now. So we've come a long way. Still a lot more to do. Um, the Women's Library Collection contains archives relating to these campaigns for equality, and I would encourage everybody here to check them out. Do also have a look on, the, um, on their website. They have two great events coming up. One is on the 12th of March. It's an Ethel Smith event, and another is on the 5th of April, which is the Bishop of London. Um, for Twitter users, it would be good if you could use the tag hashtag LSE Women Work in order to promote the event and also promote the Women's Library. Um, so tonight we have three impressive speakers, and we had a little bit of a debriefing beforehand and I promise that I'm not going to speak too long. I'm going to take a moment just to introduce um, all three panellists, and then they will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes on their own experiences and their own thoughts, given the day that we're in, um, International Women's Day. And then afterwards, I have some questions prepared, but if there's burning desire for um, discussion on the floor, I think I will leave it um, over to you. So depending on how interactive we are, you'll hear more from me at the end, or you'll hear less from me. Um, so first, I want to introduce um, Pavita Cooper, who's sitting here in the middle. Good um, so Pavita is founder and director of More Difference and has over 25 years' experience as an executive talented leader across multi-sector global chip um, organizations. Um, I think from reading about Pavita's work, she champions diversity and include, inclusion through its business case. So this idea that if we actually get people from differential types at a table, we're going to have more innovation and better outcomes from firms. Um, Pavita is also currently steering a committee member of the 30% Club, among other things. Um, next to me is Elizabeth M. Stamen, um, who is on our court here at the LSE. She is also a member of the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee, and she is an LSE alumni. So it, go it goes to show where an LSE degree can bring you. Um, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth has worked in financial services and real estate for over 25 years. Um, she's worked for Morgan and Stanley, LaSalle, and she now has a portfolio career with a number of non-executive roles, both in the UK and beyond. Um, and finally, um, we have Bronwyn Curtis at the end of the table. Um, Bronwyn is also an MSc graduate from the LSC. Um, she's a global economist whose career spans both financial markets and media. Um, she's a member of the Office for Budget Responsibility and has worked for World Bank, Deutsche Bank, Bloomberg, and serves as a NED on JP Morgan Asian Investment Trust. Um, Bronwyn is an undisputed leader, and in 2008, Bronwyn was awarded an OBE for Outstanding Achievement in um, Business Economics. So I'm going to turn it over to my panellists, and if we start maybe from the end, Bronwyn, and work, work towards me, and then leave it out for questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, when I sat down this morning and started looking at my city career, I have to say it's um, been pretty diverse, to say the least. I thought its trajectory is more like the erratic flight of a butterfly than a linear climb up a career ladder. So I thought that 
it was best if I gave you some of my experiences of being a woman in the city um, and, and some of the things that have come out of that. And uh, I also have a little surprise, um, which I found among the papers my mother, as you can hear from my accent, some of you, I'm Australian, despite the fact that I've lived here since I did my LSE degree, <laughs> I haven't lost the accent. Um, and my mother sent me back with two suitcases of things that I'd obviously sent to her over the years. And uh, so I'm going to take some information from one of those as I go through. Um, I came to the LSE um, after an economics and mathematics degree in Australia. But before that, I was the only thing I wanted to do was to be a ballet dancer. And I went to the Australian Ballet School. It was, I was there. I was going. And then I got there, and after six months, I decided that it probably wasn't the career for me. Um, I, I was good, I was really good, but I wasn't absolutely brilliant, and I was a bit tall, and all my friends were at university having a good time, and I was um, in this military establishment, and I thought, you know, I've got to get out of here. So, um, I came to the LSE, and I did a degree in, in economics, um, and then I went and worked in commodity markets because I thought that would be a good thing to take me home eventually and give me good experience. So I started there. Um, I never did really make it back. Instead, I've worked and travelled across the world in global roles, which never been, would never have been available to me in Australia. Um, I've lunched with Christine Lagarde. I've sat next to Bill Clinton for dinner. I met finance ministers, central bank heads and the heads of state. And along the way, I've run a team of people in West Africa counting pods on cocoa trees, don't ask, and travelled um, alone across Africa and Asia evaluating the work of a UN agency. Um, my first job was actually in a small consultancy in metals and mining called Commodities Research Unit. The company grew quickly, and I was lucky enough to grow quickly with it, so I started out as a research assistant and in three years ended up as a senior consultant. Um, I then moved to a division of Master Foods called Mars Confectionery, based in a factory in Slough. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because, you know, it's one of the biggest private companies in the world, and it was always well known for its egalitarianism. I mean, we, um, it was an open plan office in the days before there were open plan offices. The office was above the factory. Everyone in the factory um, actually clocked in every morning, and so did everyone in the office. The general manager was the only person who had an office of his own, and that didn't even have a door or a wall on one side. The Mars family, when they came, ate in the canteen um, with the rest of us. And it was, it, you know, it was a really... And I assumed the world was just like that. And then I made my first mistake. Um, I moved to a company called Gill & Duffus, which was at the time the largest commodity broker in the world, um, and eventually was swallowed up by what's now Mann & Company. I was the first woman chief economist in the city of London. And, you know, I wasn't ready for the city, and the city wasn't ready for me. My job, I was like, you know, someone to take out for three-hour lunches with clients, you know, and smile nicely. <laughs> And 
I mean, <clears throat> the jobs I'd had at Mars and, and in consulting were really, you know, I had responsibility, they were big jobs, I worked with really smart people. I have to say, you know, and after 18 months, I decided to cut my losses and get out. Um, I did a couple of other things then, um, including some work with the World Bank and the UN. Um, but I ended up back in banking in the city by taking another chance. I didn't want a nine to five. Well, I did want a nine to five job because I had small children. I didn't want to travel. And I didn't want too much responsibility. I'm sorry if that sounds as I'm a wimp, but actually, I just found that although I had a very supportive husband, it was really hard work doing both. So I applied to an advert in the newspaper for a fixed income analyst at Deutsche Bank Capital Markets. I didn't know anything about fixed income products, um, and, but I knew about derivatives. So they were interested in me because I knew about derivatives, and I was interested in them because I wanted to get out of commodity markets. Um, it wasn't easy, and I think these, these are things you learn along the way. I was more experienced than my boss, which was, I think, threatening to him. He didn't want to take me on. I only found out this later. And his boss actually forced him to take me on. So that was fun, as you can imagine. Um, but actually, after six months, things settled down. It did take six months, you know, of me trying to make sure that, you know, everything was, would be okay. Um, and in the end, we worked well together. And when he went back to Frankfurt, he recommended me for his position as head of the department. Now, some things have changed because the head of sales actually made it very clear that he didn't think I could do the job. Um, but, you know, he conceded that I should be at least allowed to try. Um, that's a bit different, I think, to what would happen today. Six months later... I was very determined, I have to tell you. He apologised for being wrong about his first assessment. And I have to say, I think that's quite good, because most men would forget that that ever happened. Um, from there, I went on later in the investment bank to be global head of currency and fixed income strategy. And actually, in that job, I worked with Elizabeth's husband, who is <laughs> he's here tonight somewhere. So what's changed in the city since then? And this is what I want to talk to you about. By chance, I found an old Deutsche Bank International Forum magazine from 1990, where there was an article which elicited comments from women at Deutsche Bank all over the world about women professionals. The article was called Speaking Out, and you'll be amused to hear that it was triggered by the bank's announcement at that time of a new deal only applicable in Germany, of course, but to offer part-time work while bringing up children, child-raising leave, and individual return-to-work contracts, how things have changed. So I just want, as I read a couple of these comments, because they were answers to questions, just remember that some of the countries where these comments were made, um, women still um, really struggle for recognition in the workplace. So I think it's important. But... I think a couple of things, and, and some of them are very amusing now in retrospect. Uh, I think at the time, when I think that this was published, it's interesting. What are the main prejudices affecting the professional women? One of the answers was, some women think of working women as loose-charactered. 
due to the fact that they're... This was 1990. This is not, you know, 1890. <laughs> due to the fact that they are constantly dealing with men in the office. This could result in difficult situations arising for the women when dealing with male co-workers and clients. Okay. Right. Um, let's find another one here. Do prevailing cultural norms in your country militate against the professional woman? Yes, because professional women are often viewed as ruthless, tough and insensitive, etc. This is a London one. The previous one was um, in, from Pakistan. Um, and then another answer on that same question. No, in Belgium it's very normal now that a woman has a pr profession too, although it is still the woman that does most of the tasks at home. Okay, so a couple more. How do you react? How do men react to women in managerial positions? <laughs> the first reaction always is nobody wanted to marry her, hence she chose a career. <laughs> I haven't yet, I have yet to meet a man who will gladly accept a female boss. That was also Pakistan. Um, so, oh, oh no, the next one's even worse. Their first thought is that probably the woman had an affair with the boss, but a lot of the time men don't know whether to treat her seriously or not or whether her responsibilities are real or not. That's from Australia. Um, and just a couple more, because, you know, I do think some of them... It, it, things have changed, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. But I think one of them at the end... Um, just, and I'll come to that in a second, but do women in power positions have to imitate male behaviour? Yes, particularly advantageous is the dropping of personal scruples and the development of certain pushy mentality to show consideration or feeling is taboo. And that's from Luxembourg. Um, and finally, should the bank adopt a, a policy of positive discrimination towards the female staff and I thought the, the answers on this were very interesting because mostly the answers were no, otherwise all efforts to gain the equality would be wasted from Italy and someone else, what on earth for from Singapore um, and actually I, I was the only person who was for positive discrimination in 1990 but I thought that Things have changed quite a lot, and, and I thought that it might be—it was interesting for you to be aware that, you know, it is a lot better. Some of it is because of regulation, but I think some of it is that attitudes have changed because they've had a lot more publicity. Now, I think I had—I was in banking mostly. Um, I got a bit bored around the year 2000 um, after having big jobs in banking and, and I thought if I, have, if I see another client and have to tell another fairy story, I'm going to kill the client. I just got bored, um, which was probably me. So I was doing a lot of TV as a guest and I came to the attention of Mike Bloomberg and sometimes contacts along the way, these things happen. And I was approached to help Bloomberg improve the content on their TV and radio channels in Europe. I knew nothing about making radio and TV. And I went to start with just to tell them about content. And I ended up running five channels in five different languages, in television and radio. Um, and I told people my aim was to overtake CNBC in terms of viewer numbers. And people laughed at me because Bloomberg television in those days was so terrible, <laughs> so terrible that you know, it fell off the air and people in the city 
told me if I did that, I'd ruin my reputation. Um, as it happened, I said, listen, it's so bad, it can only get better. And we did. It took nearly six years, but we overtook CNBC in terms of viewer numbers. Now, and this is something about using your experience as you go through life and through your career. And it can be quite unpredictable because you're not quite sure where you're going to go next. And I wasn't sure when I left there what that experience would do for me. What, how was I going to use that? It was so way out there in left field compared to the rest of my career. But actually, um, I was hired at HSBC to be global head of research just because of that experience. They wanted me to professionalise the output of the research for the whole bank all around the world. So bring up the quality of the written research to, say, the level of the FT and introduce video and audio and so on. So actually, sometimes the things that you've learned along the way do, in fact, help you. And finally, I just wanted to say, is it easier now for women in the city than it was for me? And I think a lot of that depends on the corporate culture. Deutsche Bank, capital markets, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. I never felt that I was a woman in a man's world. Some of the younger traders called me mum because I was the only one with children, <laughs> I think, at that age. I mean, you probably, they probably couldn't get away with calling me mum yes. now. So that's, um, mm. you know, that's one of those things. But I think the corporate culture is really important. You can put all of the rules in place that you want, but prejudices and passive-aggressive behaviour still exist. I know that this is a generalisation, but older, well-established companies really find it difficult to change, um, especially as most of the top executives have come through the whole system of the company. I think it's the same reason, by the way, why companies are, that are disrupted by changes in the marketplace fail to change quickly enough and fail as companies. So when you're choosing a company to go to, think a lot about their culture. I didn't really see myself different. Um, it wasn't really until you go up the executive ladder it gets a bit more difficult. The number of executive women on the way up to the board really matters, in my opinion. No one mentors your, you on how to deal with the envy and jealousy that can come from being a tall poppy. And my way of dealing with it when I hit a roadblock was find another job. Don't keep hitting your head against a brick wall. Thank you very much. So before we move on, I want to take the liberty of just asking one question to Bronwyn, if that's okay, that came to me while you were speaking. So throughout your talk, it sounds as an individual that you're incredibly resilient. So at the end, you mention if you're a tall poppy, that you have to withstand envy and jealousy. And you mentioned a job where some, your boss actually told you you couldn't do the job, and after a while he realized that you could do it. So for people in the room who might not necessarily have the resilience that you had as you went through your career, do you have any advice on how they can hone that soft skill? You get tougher along the way, I have to say. You get more used to it, particularly as you get higher up. But I think not to take it personally. I think often things happen to you in companies that are not to do with you. I went through a big merger at one point, and it's, it's difficult. And finding your way is difficult. And some people get spat out. And I have to say, one of the things I always say to people, it's not your fault. 
is really, and I think that's one of the biggest things I learned. It's not my fault. Actually, sometimes it might have been, but I think most of the time it wasn't my <laughs> fault. It's, it's, it's the things that happen. But you can, I think, develop a much more, you know, you, you have to be resilient, but you have to be resilient in any line of work. I don't think it's just the city. You know, it's across the piste that I think that, you know, resilience is, is really important. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's not that the city is worse or tougher or harder. I don't think it is, by the way, um, I, I, at all. Um, but I do think, you know, you have to develop resilience because there there's always someone there to knock you off your perch. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so I'll hand over to Pavita. Great. Thank you. Um, if you can't hear me at the back, just put your hand up and I've got a very loud voice. I'll speak louder. Um, Ron, you didn't mention, which I thought I'd just share with everyone, just um, before we came on, that you said your daughter had texted you this morning to say, what a wonderful role model you've been. Thank you. It's part of International Women's Day. And I think as mothers, um, you pay a penalty often with motherhood, and it's a really tough thing. And so it's wonderful to know that at the end uh, it's recognised. Um, so I'm Pavita. Um, I wanted to do something slightly different. I'm going to tell you very quickly about how I've spent my career, but I'd really like to share my insights and experiences of what I've learned through that, because my day job now is about working with organisations and campaigning for better representation of all forms of diversity. So uh, my parents came to the UK in the late 60s as immigrants. Um, it was a very tough time. We had no car till I was 10, no television. It was very difficult. I had to go to bursary to go to school. And um, for all of those, I can see some fellow Indian um, students in the room, and they all want you to be doctors or lawyers or something noble like that. Um, and I failed to deliver on that front and dropped out of university after a year because I had this vision of how I saw my life, and it wasn't doing that. Luckily, my sister made up for it, so she's always been the golden child since then. Um, so... The reason I share that is um, I think the reason I still love what I do so 32 years later is because I have always done what gives me real joy. And any time in my life I look around and think, I do not like these people, mostly men, um, and I look around and I think, I don't enjoy this context and I don't enjoy the content of what I'm doing, I move and do something else. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I meet too many men and women who are miserable in what they're doing and got on a golden escalator age 21 and they're still there 25 years later and they're deeply unhappy. And I also did something very brave, which is at the end of a very successful corporate career, I started a second chapter in my life, and it's probably been more fulfilling and more enjoyable than anything else I ever did. And so I now talk about that a lot in the talks I give, which is um, we're all going to be working. Unfortunately, now, if you're born today... Um, Half those kids will live till they're over 100, um, which means they'll be working until their 70s. Uh, so you have to really be sure that you've got skills that are meaningful and enduring and that you'll be happy for a very long time. Um, so I went off and got myself onto a retail program in a retail environment, which is what I wanted to do. But the, the thing it gave me is I led teams really early, and the reason I say that's important, it doesn't matter where you work, if it's in finance, in the city, uh, any sector, early responsibility of leading people is really important. Um, and I went on to do a number of different things and ended up in Shell when I was about 30, which at those days they called a mature hire. And in my first year, I spent 30 nights in my bed and travelled to 100 countries. Um, now, I have two very young children. I couldn't do that now. And so the other thing I would say is get that international experience under your belt as early as you can because I still travel now, but I will go to New York for two days or Hong Kong for three days and do nothing but work, and I certainly don't party anymore, and I certainly don't spend all any time shopping. I literally spend the entire time working, and I get back on a plane, get back in time to take my kids to school. So as you 
as your career develops and as your life changes, your priorities change and you have less time. Um, so getting those experiences in early are really important. Um, I then went on to forge a career as an expert in um, organization talent, um, recruitment, executive education, so basically everything at the top of organizations, which effectively meant that what I was doing is selecting all our graduates, all our MBA students, deciding who would get into the top 100, running CEO and chairman selection processes. So I've spent a lot of time working out what does it take to get to the top and assessing a lot of very well-known bankers. Um, And I think what it's taught me is that there is a way of playing out the the soft power and politics that happen in the C-suite, which men get taught very, very early on and women don't get taught, often because women and ethnic minorities are over-mentored and under-sponsored. And that's one of the critical reasons why they don't get promoted as much. So I, through my own experience, have learned what it takes for certain people to get to the top and why others don't. So now what I do, having left corporate life when I had my second child, so I had my first child at 39 and my second at 43, um, I set up on my own. And I run an advisory business working with a range of global organizations. But I also campaign, so I'm on the 30% club steering committee. I'm a government advisor on race. I'm a commissioner to the board of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And I'm a non-exec director of one of the government intelligence agencies. So I have a very different career. um, And certainly not one that I thought I'd have when I dropped out of university age 19 and my mother didn't speak to me for nine months. Um, But I love it and it's very varied. And so particularly through the work in the 30% Club, we do a lot of research around why women don't get to the top, what gets in the way, and I do a lot of speaking on it all around the world. And so I just wanted to share a couple of insights of what we've learned and what we see that I hope will help you. So the first thing I would say is to the nine men I can count in the room, I applaud you and thank you for being here. Your presence is so vital because the issue about how you improve representation for all minority groups is only going to happen when men and women work together towards change. And so every time I go to an event and I stand up and I'm just talking to a room full of women, it is pointless because the people that make the decisions and create that change are on the outside of that room. So I think it's really important that you think about in your own lives who are those people and those key sponsors and advocates who are going to support you. And in some instances, they will be men. Um, And it's really important they come on this journey with you. The second thing is we're seeing that the whole notion of diversity in organizations is evolving and becoming more sophisticated. Most organizations, particularly banks, who've got millions and have been doing this for 10 years and have made some very small progress but are finally getting there, um, they are seeing this much more as a more broader issue around inclusive culture. So they've stopped just talking about just women or just people of color, um, or just you know disability groups, or LGBTQI. They're realizing that this is about the tone set in an organization that allows someone to bring their whole selves to work. And what that means is, are you able to confront what's really going on? So are you able to tell a boss, whether you're a man or a woman, so let's say you're a man with caring responsibilities, or you've got something else going in your life, On Friday mornings, I need to come in at 8.30 rather than be tied to my desk at 7. In some organizations, that's not acceptable. In some banks, people leave their their coats on the back of their chairs. Um, So as people talk about getting better, I spend a lot of time in banks talking to women's networks, and they describe where it's still quite bad. But it's not just bad for women. Cultures also impact men. And so organizations now are starting to think about this isn't just about how it affects women, it's also how it affects all of our colleagues and employees. Um, We've also learned that, for example, affinity groups are just setting up a women's network in of itself doesn't work. It makes people feel better, but all the research shows it makes absolutely zero difference. And it comes back to if you've got 100 women standing in a room, 
having a glass of wine and talking about what can we do to fix it, but nobody else is there. Well, you can't fix it. So it's changing, and that's good. The other thing we've seen is a lot of myths around why women don't succeed. And I think organizations are finally, finally accepting that these are just that, just myths, they're not true. So the myth of meritocracy, if we put in place a great talent process and a great performance management process, it'll just be fair. Well, it won't be fair if all the people administering that process are men or women, but they have implicit bias in how they make decisions. And that's what happens. You get into a process, and I've presided over hundreds and hundreds of these, in a room where top, the top ten people at the top are having a conversation about a promotion process, and suddenly the conversation starts to go along the lines of X, who's a man, yeah, okay, well, he's had a really great year, and they focus on the results, they focus on what he's done, and we all know that he has terrible behavior, and he's a bully, and no one talks about it. It comes to the woman, why? And the conversation starts getting a little bit more nuanced. She's got really sharp elbows, hasn't she? And she's tough. I mean, she's a ball breaker. Well, if that was a man, people would be holding him up in high esteem and saying, isn't that great? So there's a double bind for women. You can't be both competent and liked. And so it's really difficult, particularly as a young woman, I think, navigating your way through, how do you want to establish who you are? So certainly when I came up through the ranks, I looked above me and what I saw is a lot of women using male adaptive behavior to act like men. Um, and that's not sustainable because women don't want to act like men to be successful. So now we're having to accept that women are going to lead in a particular way, men are going to lead in a particular way, and when a woman is assertive and asserts herself and displays a particular type of leadership behavior, that doesn't mean that she's difficult. And so what I do now is I call that out in these meetings and say it's not appropriate. Why are we talking about this person in this way and this gentleman in that way? And when you call it out to people, they're so unaware of the fact they're doing it. We did a really interesting piece of research last year that looked at um, how male and female line managers um, adapt or unconsciously think about the progression and promotion of their own people, both men and women. And we interviewed everyone using standard questions. And then when we did the analysis, what was really interesting, um, it was fascinating that without knowing it, what both men and women were doing is when it came to women, they were making all sorts of assumptions around ambition and assuming that the woman didn't want to go further. Whereas around men, when you asked a male leader the question, which is, when do you think your direct report, X, who's a man, will be ready for your job? Invariably, and this is across all sectors, from CEO all the way down, diagonal slice, they would say, he could probably do it now. And when you asked the same question for the woman, the general response was first silence, and then a, hmm, oh, I don't know, oh, um... Well, I think she'd need to address these issues. And what we found when we decoded it is that when we ask both men and women to talk about what women need to do differently, they start describing style. She needs to engage more. She needs to collaborate more. She needs to get out of the business and build her network more. Not specific things around what she is doing. And so there are these myths around why women don't get to the top, but it's usually much more complex than the way I've just described. It's not about having kids. We've, all the research shows having children doesn't in any way deny you from getting to the top. What it does is it delays it because you take a less linear approach and you off-ramp, on-ramp, go off, do other things. Um, and certainly there are, I think, other myths that exist around um, that you know, having a woman at the top is enough. You put one woman, so at the moment many boards are doing this one-and-done issue, so the numbers on boards are finally starting to go backwards because women have done two terms and now they're coming off boards and men are being replaced by those women. 
And so the issue about just having one is you need critical mass. So when young women look up and look to the top, they say, well, that's just not the kind of place I want to work, right? Why would I be here? I'd rather go and work in an environment that feels like I belong. And, it, and particularly if you're an ethnic minority, even more so, it's the intersectionality of being a woman and not being white. It's even more pronounced and more profound. And so we tend to work in this space with organizations to say we've learned all this stuff about why women don't get ahead, what gets in the way, what's the role of men, what is it women need to do more of, um, how can we support women to be able to talk about things like negotiate pay, um, which often they're not very good at. I mean, I meet women and will say, what, what, you know, how much do you earn? And I already know they're 30% off the market rate. And when I ask them, did they know that, they'll look at me and say, no, because I'm too busy working. Um, so I don't need a headhunter. I don't have time to go to networking events. Um, and that's the problem. Um, so I come back to this issue about children not being the only reason why women don't get ahead. I'm not saying it makes it easy. Uh, as I say, I've got very young kids. They're 8 and 11. And it is challenging. And my husband's a CEO. But as I always say to him, he's CEO of a bank, there are two of us, but in our life there are three jobs. And therein lies the issue that there needs to be some wider societal change around the role of caring in families. So the government have introduced this idea about having shared parental leave and less than eight men have taken it up. Eight percent of men have taken up in organizations. More and more organizations are moving to shared parental leave. And the good news is, as they do that, um, particularly millennials coming through will start to say, it's okay for a man as well as a woman to take leave. But all the men I talk to say, well, Pavita, I, I can't take six months off because, you know, my boss won't remember my name by the time I get back. I think, yeah, welcome to our world, right? So what do you think has been happening to women for the last 50 years? So I think the fact that policies are changing, I come back to, you can't process your way through change. Policies might change, behavior and society has to change too. Um, so I'm going to stop there because I could go on for three hours on what we've learned through our work. But um, I just wanted to highlight, I think, the key messages around there is progress, it is getting better, but I think you have to get really get underneath what kind of organization you're joining and do they care? Um, is it the sort of environment you want to be in? And what is it like for the women that are there? Excellent. Um, I just want to pick up on one point that you made about meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some people feel that this rise of the word meritocracy within big firms is just another way to stop women advancing at the pace that they should, that they should advance. So if, if I'm in a firm and I say that I always promote people on merit or I always give bonuses on merit, it's a way of downgrading the privilege that certain individuals get in the organization. Do you, do you agree with that or do you think that we're moving in the right direction going towards meritocracy? I get that a lot. As you can imagine, I get it mostly from men rather than from women. I, I have men being very honest with me, saying to me, Peter, I can't get on a non-exec role now because I'm a white middle-aged man. Um, and so there is a leveling of the playing field. I mean, I'm a strong believer this is not about lowering any bar. It's about widening the door. So there is enough out there. The, cake, the size of the cake is big enough for everyone. This is about ensuring that we are broadening the talent pool and people are searching in a deeper way. So at the moment, the way the processes work, I mean, I, as I say, sat in hundreds of paid decisions, um, consistency checks, where I literally sat in one where I had to check myself because a group of men had a conversation where the woman was the highest performing member in a sales team, and I was nearly dropped off at one point. I got so bored, I was sort of doodling on my pad, and I suddenly heard someone say, but the guy next down from her, this is on a forced ranking process, which luckily doesn't happen anymore, he's got three kids and she's single. 
And I think, so as you can imagine, I then intervened and we had a different conversation. Um, but I kind of thought to myself, really? We, this patriarchy, and it was very well intended. So, yes, I think it is still an issue and you have to call it out every point. Thank you. Um, and finally, Elizabeth. Yes, well, thank you, Grace, and also Bronwyn and Pavita. So I'll, um, it's a real pleasure to be part of the International Women's Day panel at the LSE this evening. As you heard, LSE is very close to my heart, having been on court and then also on council for a number of years. And I very much hope, um, Grace and others, that this will be the start of many women in the city events um, you know, the LSE will be hosting. Um, I Actually, when I was looking at the panel, and sadly I hadn't seen the panel before it went on the website, um, I actually thought one thing I think the LSE could think about is, is make it actually more diverse. So I'm actually really pleased we have different nationalities, very different backgrounds, but last night I was at the Swiss Embassy for um, the launch event of the Gender Equality Index, and it's a, a study on fifth did on women in central banking. And the Swiss ambassador started with a few comments, and he said that he is a gender champion of the sort of Geneva gender champions. And I hadn't expected the Swiss ambassador to say anything like that. And he explained that one of the things the Geneva gender champions do is they make absolutely sure there are no panels where only one gender is represented. So that's just a thought to leave with you, because I do think female-only panels can you know, it are good on the day like today, but I, as, ba as bad as I think, you know, having male-only panels, I think it's always good to have lots of different diversity. Um, I'm really glad, Pavita, that you congratulated the men in the room, because I think I'm responsible for at least half of them, um, <laughs> including my family, because I'm the lone woman um, in the family of six, so I'll explain <laughs> later a bit more. And actually, I specifically invited a lot of men, and I'm really pleased. Um, they came along as much as I'm pleased about every woman who joined um, the invitation. Um, so um, Grace asked me to share um, a little bit my career journey and experience, and I'll, I'll make it quite personal to start with. So just to give you some context, I was born in Hamburg in northern Germany um, as one of six children, five girls and one boy. So um, when my mother had um, my brother as the fifth child, she knew she had to have another child because she thought you know, it's not going to be any good if he's the youngest. And to give her and actually both my parents credit, we were all treated absolutely the same. So to the point that um, when my brother um, was studying um, in Munich and his future wife saw him shopping at Aldi, now everybody knows Aldi in England, and she saw him, you know, buying flour, sugar, um, all kinds of things, she thought, oh gosh, he's obviously married. I mean, I can forget that. And actually he was shopping because he was baking a cake. And I'm pleased to say... Um, all my sons love cooking. One of the ones who's here loves baking. So um, to me, it was always really important because I, to me, it's a life skill. So I think that, you know, just this, having been very used to being treated the same, um, I spoke also on a panel a couple of years ago about Frauenquarter. Um, Gillian is here who arranged it, and it's about quotas on boards. And one thing which came across in the panel is that every single panelist had very strong mothers and or grandmothers. And I had both, actually. I had, you know, one of my grandmothers was one of the first PhDs um, in Germany. She actually was five years older when my, than my grandfather. And her parents-in-law were not pleased at all when she was working 
um, while my grandfather was still studying. He was studying medicine, and surely enough, he had, she had to stop working when they became, um, when you know, they started a family. So. Uh, my mother um, started working outside of the house when she was over 50, having raised six children. So to me, that was um, actually a big experience. And if I think about my own children, I do hope that you know, seeing me always working while raising a family was a good inspiration. Um, so coming back to sort of growing up, so I went to school and loved music, played you know, the piano a lot. So it's interesting what Bruno said about becoming a ballet dancer. I joined an orchestra, started, or started to learn you know, violin and viola, and joined an orchestra. And to me, it was really clear after school I was going to study German literature and music because that's what I liked at school. And I was about 17, um, just turning 18, and I was sitting you know, with my parents to kind of tell them what I was going to do. And my father, who's still going strong at 90, um, 98 years old, um, said, you know what, I think you should do something where you can really make a difference. I think you'd be really bored as a teacher and you're too impatient to be an academic, so forget that. Um, why didn't you go into banking? And also, I do think, and that was very modern advice in those days, you should be able to support your own family. You cannot rely on marrying. You can't rely on, even if you marry, that your husband will be able to you know, support the family by himself. So um, you need to be able to have a, family, um, you know, a job which supports a family. And that may be because my father, having been an academic, started his own business as a wine merchant, much more sensible in some ways. Um, and it was the experience, having gone through you know, being an entrepreneur, um, that, you know, having somebody else, and actually in this case also my mother, who actually started working when he retired from the business. Um, that was actually really modern advice, especially in Germany in the 90, early 1980s. So I thought, I knew nothing about banking, but, but, but perhaps like Bronwyn thought, you know, in those days, what's the difference between a check and a transfer? And I mean, I had no clue. To me, it was like learning a new language. Um, and um, I applied um, to various banks in Hamburg, and interestingly, I applied to Deutsche Bank, and they turned me down. The reason they turned me down is my grades were too good. They said, um, they asked what my parents did. My father had a PhD, so that was bad. Uh, he was an academic. Um, my three older sisters were either at university or did some higher education. They said, you know, you're going to leave after two years because it was sort of like an apprenticeship study work program. You're going to leave and then you're going to have, um, marry, get married and have children. They actually said this to me again. It, things where I think things have improved is nobody would ever say this to you now. But I was devastated. I mean, nobody had ever turned me down for anything. Um, but thankfully, I'd applied for, to another bank. Um, and they said... Oh, we really like your background. We, you've obviously done well at school. Can we offer you a scholarship? Um, and um, so um, we'll, um, you can do three years, um, a study work program. We pay for your studies, and you just you know, work Mondays through Thursday, study Friday, Saturday, and then you know, have sort of different things. And I thought, it's only one year more. I did my A-levels one year early, so that's fine. I actually was going to become a lawyer or judge and thought, if I want to study law, I can still do that. So I um, went into banking, actually really enjoyed it to my big surprise. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet my husband um, on my first day at work. So, uh, <laughs> uh, that, um, and, um, so I did this three-year uh, study and work program. 
The scholarship made me financially independent, which was great because my parents were already paying for my three older sisters. Um, and, I, and I was very lucky. After my three-year program, um, I moved into sort of like internal strategy department, consulting department for, for the bank, and worked for somebody. So the, the um, person who was responsible was an ex-McKinsey person, um, you know, really was thinking about the bank in a very different way. And the guy I worked for had just finished his PhD. It was his first job. He was probably about 10 years older than me and gave me tons of responsibilities. So I was early 20s, and he sent me out in the regions to explain to the heads of the large um, branches um, why they weren't making any money. So you can imagine, they were all male. They were um, probably, in some cases, three times as old as me. So I was early 20s, they were 60-plus, sometimes perhaps mid-50s, and I come by train, was sit on my little bag and explain to them why they're not making money. So before I went on my first trip, I said to my boss, do you think that's a good idea? He said, yeah, you can do it, which actually taught me if somebody empowers you and they give you the, you know, the, the feeling you can do this, absolutely you can do it. So, but it's having somebody to um, also, you know, um, Bronwyn and Pavita's points, it's about sponsoring and mentoring, but it really meant a lot to me. And interestingly enough, this person I worked um, for, this, which was sort of 30 odd years ago, is now um, uh, is the deputy chair of one of the supervisory boards I'm on, and he put my name forward. So I always stayed in touch with him. I probably, we never talked about that he's my mentor or sponsor. I talk to him regularly, um, you know, on a round board meetings. I'm seeing him again for dinner next week when I'm in Germany for board meeting. But it's sort of just in an informal you know, um, arrangement in a way, but you know, it's, he's never officially become my mentor or anything. Um, so I got a lot of responsibility, and then after about two years, um, I felt by that time I was 23 or something, and I felt um, in order to really get ahead in Germany, I had to be at least double the age, preferably male, and I just was getting a bit bored and thought, what do I do? And I had looked at... Um, business schools in the U.S., thought about France, and then I thought, well, you know, my then-boyfriend is British, working in Germany, I thought, well, might as well see what the U.K. is like. And I was lucky because my, our parents had always sent us to exchange visits because they couldn't really afford going on holiday with all of us. So I'd gone to England um, from the age of 14, and the only place I could really think of was the LSE because Ralph Darendorf had been the director, everybody knew about the LSE, and... I think back now, I literally only applied to one course at the LSE, no emails, and I don't even remember how I found out about the course, sent of the application, waited. I mean, I had a job, so I hadn't quit, um, and thought, it's going to work, right? I mean, I had, didn't have a plan B, but I could have just stayed in my job, and I got, got the offer, so it was a postgraduate diploma in business studies, which was a mix of economics, accounting and finance, organizational theory, which I really enjoyed, so I'm glad to grace you um, doing research on that. And, um, and then I had a free choice, which was, and I studied international relations because that was something which didn't exist in Germany, and I loved the combination between history, politics, economics, a bit of philosophy. Um, Fred Halliday, I don't know, for those of you who might still remember him, was fantastic. So I really enjoyed that. Very international course. I met all kinds of people. I mean, I'd never, never met anybody from Asia, never met anybody from South America. And I made a point when I was at the LSE not to hang out with the German 
crowd. So I had lunch on Fridays. I was sort of probably a bit strict about it. On Fridays, I would have lunch with <laughs> my German friends. And otherwise, I would have friend, lunch with people from Colombia, from India, from, you know, in, all over the world, America, um, just to kind of get to know different people. Because to me, it was super exciting because, you know, it was just new. Um, and um, so um, my, I had a scholarship um, from a German organization, and that meant that I had to um, work at the same time as studying or do in my, in my, um, in my uh, breaks. Um, applied for internships. Nobody knew really what internships were. Um, got rejected. Um, you know, well, quite often didn't hear back. There were no emails in those days. And I got quite down. And one of my um, professors... Um, who's recently retired, um, encouraged me to said, keep going, gave me lots of ideas, and just kind of, again, had faith in me and really helped. And when somebody turned me down, he said, you know what, they're probably not hiring anybody. It's not because you failed. It's just they didn't want to say to you, we're not hiring, because it was sort of in the middle of Big Bang. There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, so, yeah, it, I found it quite hard because I'd never failed at anything. And then I just kept going. I just walked, went to all these, I don't know whether you could still call them grapevine events or where, you know, firms come and talk to students. And I just talked to anybody and just said, I just want to work. I mean, I don't need to earn money. I have a scholarship. Can you offer me some work? And somebody said, well, why don't you apply as an analyst? I didn't know what an analyst was. Um, somebody explained, and it's basically being part of the graduate intake and an investment bank. So I applied to all kinds of different firms. Morgan Stanley made me an offer. I remember calling my then boyfriend, who was still in Frankfurt, said, you know, I've got this offer from this firm called Morgan Stanley. I'm not really sure I should take it. He said, of course you're going to take it. I mean, are you crazy? It's a fantastic firm. Um, anyway, so I did. I'm thinking I might stay there for a year or two. Well, I ended up staying 24 years. Um, uh, didn't quite expect that. Worked in a wide range of roles across the investment banking division, capital markets, actually, um, as Bronner in corporate finance, financial institutions, um, private equity, real estate, so all kinds of... So in my 24 years, I probably did close to 10 different roles because um, it was really good to kind of do different things. I just always wanted to learn different things. Um, I was quite unusual because I got married at the end of my first analyst years. People sort of, some people thought, well, this is it, she's going to leave. Um, and then I had my first child as a junior associate. My second child, as I was um, up for promotion to vice president, which was very important, and I made one really big mistake, the, child, the so-called child is in the room, that um, I thought I had to go back to work um, because I was up for promotion. And so I... Um, he was a terrible sleeper, so I didn't get any sleep. I kind of, uh, in those days, you didn't have these mother's rooms, so I very um, secretly at lunchtime would go to the nurse's room, you know, pump some milk, shove it at the end of the fridge, hoping that nobody would realize what it was, go home, feed him. Because it was sort of my way of proving I wasn't letting anybody down and I wasn't letting him down. Um, he thrived, so he, at some point he slept, but I was totally exhausted. And so with hindsight, so one piece of advice, and we might come back to advice, is what difference would it have made if I had been you know, promoted one year later? But it was sort of my personal pride. I was part of a class, and I didn't want to be left behind. Nowadays, to be honest, I would hope that firms would be more open-minded, but in those days I just felt I had to be back. Um, 
So anyway, I stayed at Morgan Stanley so for almost 24 years, um, and um, then moved um, to La Salle Investment Management, a global real estate investment manager. Um, uh, spent quite a lot of time also traveling, spent about a week a month in Chicago, went to Asia, etc. By that time, my husband had moved to the civil service and um, had, a, to some extent, not always, but to some extent, a more particular role. So I was actually, to some extent, sort of doing more global travel. And also, I became much more outspoken, coming back to some of the points Bronwyn and Pavita made about um, why I was working. So at Morgan Stanley, because practically all my male colleagues, or certainly the senior male colleagues, had wives who were at home. Um, and they sort of assumed I was working because perhaps I didn't want to look after my children, or perhaps I was getting bored at home, or perhaps I just did it for fun to come back to Pavita's point about pay. So I remember having a conversation with one of my bosses. It was something to do when I was leaving, and he, it was about health insurance. And one of my children um, had um, needed some medical help, and I said, I really, really need to stay on health insurance for a while. And he said, well, surely your husband has got private health insurance. And I said... No, actually, he doesn't. I have the health insurance for the whole family because he's in the civil service. And he was completely shocked. It just had not occurred to me. And he would not, absolutely not, have asked Amanda's question. So it actually occurred to me. I should have probably been much more outspoken for a while. I became much more outspoken that for a while I was the main breadwinner, and it was really important that I was working. So I um, moved to La Salle um, um, for couple of years. And then as I was um, thinking about uh, what I might do next, I was asked about non-executive roles and um, by a search firm, and did I had ever thought about it? And I said, yeah, I have, but you know, I might do that when I retire, so enough for another 10 years or so. Um, but then there was a German company, real estate, um, was going through an initial public offering, was based in Berlin, and I really liked Berlin. So I thought, if they'd pay me a flight to Berlin, I might as well go and test it out. So I Cut long story short, um, joined that board, and then my boss of 30 years ago heard I was joining a board, and he said, oh, can I put your name forward? We're thinking about putting um, new people on the board again. It obviously went through a formal search process. So it really happened sort of, you know, one thing after another. So now I'm uh, so on the board of um, Ariel Bank in Germany, um, on a board of, so it's the third largest listed bank in Germany, um, on the board of the largest um, provider of retirement nursing homes in France called Cognon. Um, and then also in between, I had joined the Bank of England as a senior advisor at the PRA, the Prudential Regulation Authority, um, which oversees supervision of banks and insurance companies. And about um, 18 months ago, I was asked, would I apply to become an external member of the Financial Policy Committee? Um, so I got this email and had actually, I, I can probably say this, I had a very female reaction. I said, why me? Why would they ask me? Um, it's no way. I mean, I, and I sort of was puzzled. I was actually at a board meeting in Paris. I was on, went on the Eurostar, still puzzled, came home, showed it to my husband and said, um, I'm not really sure I should do this. And he said, have the conversation. And actually, I think you can do this. So why, why do you even think you can't do it? So I thought, okay, might as well have the conversation. But again, it's something, trust in your own abilities. And I think, to be fair, that's you know, advice both to men and women, but I do think women tend to underestimate 
their abilities. So there is, um, sure, Pavita, Ian, we've seen and Bronwyn, probably two, where women see a job advert with ten things on it, and they'll focus on the one thing they think they're not perfect at, and I definitely, um, I'm that um, camp, whereas... And I don't know whether you've seen that in your research, Grace. A man, and again, it's a very black and white um, comparison. Men see something and they see two things they can do and they forget about the eight things they may not be so good at. So anyway, um, so I, um, yeah, I started, um, I joined the FPC about a year ago, um, the Financial Policy Committee, chaired by Mark Carney, the governor. Um, at the moment, um, I'm the only woman among a committee of 13. I'm pleased to say that is about to change. Although, actually, I must say, coming back to the point of diversity, sometimes it's almost more important to have diversity of thought in terms of having people with different backgrounds. I actually feel, in some ways, even I, my French board is less diverse because I'm actually, um, there's me and one other German, so actually a, a medical doctor on the board. We feel so kind of the, you know, the odd ones out in a way because it's very clear that there's the French group and the other group. So there are different dynamics in terms of diversity, which I hadn't appreciated before. Um, so just to finish off, listening to this, you probably think I had this grand plan when I started off, uh, whether I was 18, 20, whatever. Um, actually, I didn't. If you'd asked me whether I'd stay in banking for 25-odd years Absolutely not. Um, work at the Bank of England? No. Nah. I mean, even five years ago? No, absolutely not. Um, or start a portfolio career? I might have said, oh, yes, when I'm 60 plus, I might think about that. So it's really something where being open for opportunities and sometimes a bit of serendipity, so having a bit of luck, um, you know, talking to people, keeping an open mind. Um, I think I mentioned on the way, so I have four sons, all millennials, so students, um, and all sort of starting off in their careers. Two of them are here tonight. Um, and, um, yeah, plus we come back to this later in terms of sharing, you know, best sort of tips, practice, whatever. But uh, thank you for being here tonight, and I'm um, looking forward to the questions. So just to follow up on some, um, a theme that seemed to go to, through your talk is that at certain key parts of your career, you mentioned that you had people who empowered you. Mm -hmm. So there could be people in the room who don't have those figures in their lives at the moment. So do you have any advice on how you can actually find people who can empower you and support you throughout your career? Um, I think it's actually really important not to just rely on official sort of networks. So, I mean, for example, about 10 years ago when the whole, perhaps even more, when the whole sort of women's and other kind of network initiative started, I, I got an, a mentor, an official mentor, which actually, in fact, I had lunch with her earlier this week. It's great. I still stay in touch with her. She was a trader in a different area of Morgan Stanley, very bullshit, very kind of, yeah, very different to me. Um, um, so that was actually good. But then also I've tried to look for people who are very different to me. So more in sort of, say, aggressive American or something. So um, to come back to some of Pavita's and Bronwyn's points, where somebody might actually be also very honest with you and say, I think you need to approach this very differently. So, you know, at certain times when say whether it's remuneration or going for a role which might stretch you where you might not kind of really push yourself as hard. So I actually think 
It could be anybody. So I do all kinds of things. I sing in a choir, um, both at church and at work, actually, at the Bank of England. Sometimes I meet people through commuting on the train. <laughs> I meet people when I go to various events. So, so I think it's very much informal networks. Um, and it's both. Also, I've more and more also find, yes, obviously people might be more senior than you, but actually the more senior you get, it's also good to have sort of peers, but actually sometimes peers don't look for too many people who are too similar, I think to me would be my most important point. And also, actually, I more and more also find having, whether it's mentors, mentees, where you have sort of the reverse mentoring, um, where people actually might, say, give you some idea about something you might not have thought about, and that person may be from a different generation. So, um, so I, you know, I think just having informal networks and also giving back in different ways. So I don't see it, I take this and sort of, but I try to kind of give back. So it's very much a two-way relationship. Thank you very much. So I'm going to open the questions to the floor. If you could just say um, your name and if you're in a company, the company that you're in, or if you're in a LSE program, the program that you're in, and if there's a particular panelist that you want to address your question to, do also let us know. So there's a hand in it. I'm in my final year of LSE, uh, uh, mathematics and economics. So now I have um, two opportunities in front of me, like one in public sector, actually Bank of England, and one in private sector, which is an asset management firm. I just want to ask, um, as a woman and as a student who is into banking, um, should I start my career in public sector first or private sector first? Thank you. Uh, It's for uh, Elizabeth. Gosh, that's a really difficult question. Um, uh, um, I think, frankly, I think you could do either, and perhaps that's not very helpful. Um, I think it really depends on the role, and I think to come back to some of Roman's points earlier, it's also a question of culture. So I do think it's really important who you work with. So you could be in a public sector role, and um, you might think you have a better quality of life or better balance, and it could be awful. So I, I would do as much due diligence as possible, find out as much as possible about you know, the, the area you might be going into, the people you might be working with. Just ask them, could, could I have coffee with somebody? Um, and, and ask around, ask for advice, because you could do either. So uh, honestly, I think, um, depending on, on in which area you are, I think the most important thing is that you do a role where you learn a lot and where you have sort of get quite broad experience which you can use in other areas. So I've always found that um, up to now actually that people say you've done all these different things and that's actually really helpful. I don't know whether others might say different things. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter which role you take. Um, obviously you want to take one. The people you work with are important. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you like the people because you're there a long time during the day. Um, and Elizabeth made the point, you want to learn stuff. But that won't be your only job. That'll be your first job. I mean, you, I, mean I may have stayed in banking 25 years, in, but I'm probably in four different companies or three different companies. Um, and now, you know, I'm on the board of the Office of Budget Responsibility. I sit on other commercial boards. So I try to, to sort of 
experience everything. So I don't think it matters where you start as long as you learn and it gives you more skills because you can probably then, if you start the Bank of England, go to an asset management firm, you know, or, you know, and, and, and vice versa at some point. But I think just make sure that the job takes you forward in terms of your learning and skills. Thank you. Um, and that, that was a great question. I'm going to go sort of to the other end of the, the scale. So that was a question about starting out. Um, and um, I own a, and am the founder of a, a board development and search firm as well as sitting on boards. And um, one of the sort of themes that's really come up is we've seen a lot of progress in diversity uh, and in gender diversity. But when it comes to the chair role, that's not really moving. Mm. And I think the Hampton Alexander Review has, has published quite recently that that number in the FTSE has actually gone backwards. Um, and it's certainly something that we're focusing on as a firm. How, how can we shine a light? How can we um, ensure that we're actually getting more movement coming through here? So I'd like to take the opportunity, and we've touched on a whole range of themes of what needs to be done, etc. But if we look at that top, top role... Um, which arguably, if you kind of crack that, you've probably sort of, you know, there's, there's a cascade effect. Uh, I'd like to ask each of the panellists, what needs to be done? What do we need to do to ensure that we're getting, you know, the number of female chairs is going up rather than backwards as, as, as it is now? So, um, Almond, do you want to start? Okay. Um, I, do, I do chair a public company, but it's a small one. Um, so... I think the issue is just getting the numbers through. So we started with 30% of women on boards. I mean, I think it should be 50%. I've always thought it should be 50%. I really think that you have to force people to do it. Um, and then they get the experience. I think, you know, to chair a company is different to being a non-executive on a company or even an executive because you do take on a lot of responsibility and you know in the end it's on your shoulders and I think that there aren't enough women yet there are women that can take it on there are plenty of women who can but often you find that the steps have been taken by the men so far and it's just that extra step um, I see no reason why the women that I meet on board are more than capable of taking on the chairing role. Um, I think it's being given the opportunity, and I think it's the same sort of thing that things that you talked about, that, well, the man, you know, he may be this or he may be that, but, you know, he's ready for the next step. The woman, well, you know, you know she needs to improve her networking skills. And, uh, you know, men... Uh, Ravi Tass is quite often the one they use. You know, so not enough gravitas is not the, enough gravitas. the excuse, exactly. Different oh, well, style. I've got age on my side now, so I have gravitas. But, you know, it, it is, it's, it's exactly the same issues right at the top there. So I would add to that and say that I think um, ten years ago, when the whole initiative to get women on board started, there was a whole slew of women who very, I think, smartly stepped off the corporate career ladder in terms of executive careers and they literally leapfrogged over. They didn't bother getting onto Exco because they looked up and thought, what's the point? I'm never going to get them. I'm never going to be CEO. There's only six in the FTSE 100 now. Um, and that number's gone backwards too. And they leapfrogged straight onto boards because there was this huge push to get more women on. And to be fair, I think they were very competent, very um, 
well-deserving and they had the right skill set. There was some you know, push and pushback and speculation that it was for the wrong reasons and the wrong women getting on. I don't believe that's the case. As I said earlier, those numbers are now going backwards. The problem is to get to the chair role, as you will know better than anybody in the room, you need to have rotated around some key roles on that board, mm-hmm. been a SID, probably been you know, head of the audit committee, uh, possibly had some Remco experience. And so you've then got the company secretary and the deputy chair usually making that decision. And again, it's like the papal ascendancy. They go in and wait for the smoke to come out of the room. It's a really closed process amongst a very... There's no transparency. Mm-hmm. It's a very closed group of people. And what happens... It all gets played out in the press, and everybody speculates as to who might get the job, and then someone totally random gets it, and you think, well, that was really weird. How did that happen? So I think greater transparency, and I think much more um, uh, having to account for when you haven't even considered or interviewed some of the obvious candidates. And I think Philip Hampton is really working hard on that and pushing Mm. for greater transparency, and they're doing some great work. Um, but Deanna Oppenheim has just been appointed to a FTSE 250 board. I mean, it's getting better. So there's a generational thing that as people come through, um, like Bronwyn, you know, will be able to do that. She gets to bigger boards, and so that's starting to happen. So I think it will be progress. But it's slow, right? It's mm. going to take a long time. And you do need that, just sorry, okay. just that experience on the boards. Because I was an executive for, and I was on Exco and all of those things at, uh, at the Investment Bank at HSBC. But when... <laughs> When I started to look, think about being on a non-executive, because I didn't really bother with that, and if you're in somewhere like HSBC, they will not like you, let you take other roles because you're conflicted. So people told me that, you know, I just didn't have enough experience. I should have started 10 years earlier. I'm thinking, you know, you can't start everything 10 years earlier. So even there, you know, and then so you, you have to build it a bit at a time. And then I decided... Well, actually, I decided early on I didn't want to be on the board of a big bank. I could have been... I didn't want to do that. The regulation and compliance, I thought, was just boring, and I didn't want to be bored. So I picked and chosen somewhat smaller things that are more interesting. So I think there's also... You know, it depends on the motivation of of women as well. Sorry. No, and I would add, Gillian, um, I think also... Um, being, being as a candidate very clear about kind of almost the career plan and, um, and being probably quite clear with the chair I want to become chair of a committee or um, I may want to become the senior independent director so one of my boards is chaired by a woman an American woman so at the German bank board and, um, and I was quite surprised she sort of um, said to me you know just before I joined over lunch, what, what do you think you can bring to the board? What would you like to do? And I actually said, having been on audit committee, I did not particularly want to go on the audit committee. I'd quite like to do something else. And she said, well, actually, I want to make you deputy chair of the risk committee. And again, I was sort of having my female moment thinking, oh, no, why me? Can I do this? She said, I think you'd be the best person for the job. So I thought, well, if she thinks that, I probably can. So I sort of, you know, again, putting yourself forward um, and yeah I think not not exactly not being shy playing a little bit perhaps once in a while the political game um, which is probably doesn't perhaps come always as naturally certainly not to me um, and and really you know in an ideal world sort of think okay what's the route and I know you've done a lot of work in your firm in terms of that what is the route and so chairing the committee getting ready then possibly going from pub, you know private to to list it from FTSE to 50 to larger, but people have different views. Some people don't want to share. So, anyway. So, so the gentleman in the back. 
And there's a lady next next to And then two more. Hello. My name is Daniel. Uh, I was a sabbatical officer at LSE last year and now um, working in education policy and research in the early years sector. And I'm really interested in terms of culture change. Where does this begin and where are you seeing it starting to turn? And where do you think the future is to actually get it embodied? Because I've, I've got friends who are now working in the city and they say there's talk but action is the next step. So I would say that the big um, pull for this has not come from within organisations. It's been external. So um, so wider uh, technical, change around technology, wider social and political change, and the demographic of society is creating the pull. So uh, organisations that have been faced with AI and digital onslaught and thinking about big data and where they go next and what's going to happen. They're being forced to think about the the breakdown of their workforce and where new skills and talents coming from. They're being forced to think about what kind of world millennials want to join, what kind of cultures they need to create. That's why this big push for things like agile working um, and dynamic working, which doesn't mean working part-time and being paid half and working full-time, which is unfortunately what it meant when I came through. Um, It actually means properly dynamic working for men and for women and for everybody. So now um, the construct of work is having to totally change for the next 100 years, and so organisations are being kicking and screaming, dragged to, we have to make this change. And alongside that, they're having to say, well, then we need a different kind of leadership model, right? So we've got a leadership model that's based on something that's a couple of hundred years old, that's you know, uh, very hierarchical, command and control. I tell you what to do, you do it, I'm your boss. That's what engagement looks like. It's not, those bets are off, right? It's all about how do I really connect, create purpose, help people identify how they can be successful, much more fluid careers, uh, coming into the work, uh, workplace, then coming out and doing something maybe more vocational, going off doing something else three years and coming back in. So it's just more fluid. And so I think most big organisations are really grappling with this, but we're seeing it because every day I meet someone that says, oh, you know, I'm leaving my job to go and be the head of cultural engagement at Centrica or at Compass Group or HSBC. So even the job titles are changing and the way they think about work is changing. So I have huge optimism that this kind of cultural change takes a long, long time and the people in the jobs, the middle managers, the marzipan layer... They've got to change first. Can I just... I think that's right. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I think you probably have to do for that marzipan layer, who have people reporting to them and, you know, all those biases that we've talked about, is you need KPIs where it affects their promotion and pay if they don't perform in terms of, you know, how many women of diverse whatever the diversity is. I'm using women as a a sort of bigger term than that, but how many women have you promoted? How many women in your team? How how many, you know, that sort of thing that is actually measured. Because what gets measured gets done. So I'm I'm a great believer in, in measuring these things because when someone comes for their review and you look at it and you say, well, you know, yes, you've got one woman and, you know, ten... Men in, you, you can see what I'm saying. I think it has to be visible and transparent so that it does affect promotion and pay. People will do it then. I, I think it's a really difficult um, thing to deal with, um, Daniel. I think um, 
So I certainly remember from the private sector, you know, when I was at Morgan Stanley, it was very much about FaceTime, and I would hope that that has changed somehow now with flexible working and also people being able to work with, you know, computers wherever they are. I had one of the first laptops when I kind of officially was working on a flexible working arrangement and it was this thing where, you know, you stick it in the telephone box and it makes funny noises and, you know, it took ages for any emails to come through. So thank goodness has this moved on. Um, I found it actually quite different moving to the public sector. So um, where people right to the very top um, will work flexibly um, and may not be in the office on certain days. And as to your point, Pavita, agile working is not taking the day off, but absolutely they're working, and both men and women. And I've sort of seen, I'd be interested what other people also in the audience think. I would hope that you know, a new generation of people working actually have a different perspective on it, and it's not as important where you are. Now, I would, it should be very clear, there's some jobs where it just doesn't work, right? There's some jobs you can do from wherever you are. If you're a trader or if you, can, you, know, you do stuff where you need lots of screens where you can only do it when you're in the office or you have physical meetings, it doesn't work. But I, do, I would hope that things have moved along. Um, but, yes, I think it's a it's slow process, progress. So I saw a lot of hands last time, so I'm going to gather up three questions. So I promised this lady here, and I had this lady in the front. And was there someone else in the front row last time? Yes, and this lady here. So we'll do three, and then we'll take responses from the panel. Hi, I'd like to thank the panel, your talks. You know, Could you stand up? Sorry. Hi. I would like to thank all three of you. Your talks are very insightful and inspiring. So um, my name's Neelam. I now run an executive coaching and training um, company, but I did work in the city about 12 years ago. So I had my first child, and I went back to work. I went back to UBS, and then I wanted flexible working and part-time working, and it was one of those, what's the point? Um, my husband's a lawyer, so he worked for a magic circle firm, and both of us found we couldn't do two, three jobs with two of us. So I decided to just you know, um, move aside, and I just concentrated on my boys, who are now 16 and 12. But um, two or three years ago, I decided to set up my um, company. And I work with a lot of millennials, a lot of women. So I do a lot of um, work with um, women in tech as well. What I wanted to know from you three was that you're obviously very successful and you're clearly role models for many people in this room. What traits do you attribute that to? What traits do you attribute your success to? I know we touched on resilience earlier, but what, you know, what could you tell me and the rest of this room what those traits are? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Second question. Hi, um, I'm Zoe and I work at, as a legal assistant at a citizenship investment firm. Uh, my question is, do you have any advice for um, handling kind of everyday small sexism in the workplace? Mm-hmm. And okay. can I pass the mic behind? Hello, my name is Yvonne. I am a German journalist, and I would like to ask the panel actually about returnships. Some banks have put these programs on, and how useful are they in your view? And a second one, if I may sneak one in, another question is about uh, fintech. Uh, just wondering what your views are. I mean, a lot of these fintech companies seem to be very male. I mean, lots of men there, and it's very technical. So does that mean that, uh, you know, we might see 
an even stronger trend against women in the city in the future. So, so we can try and get one or two more questions in at the end. Bronwyn, can I ask you to speak to traits, please? Traits for success. Yes. Well, someone mentioned about having a strong mother. My mother took a whole factory out on strike when she was 20. Um, in a country town. Um, went to Melbourne and stood up because the union man was being paid off. Um, and she got it changed, but... Um, you know, it's, um, I think, you know, I do not come from a well-off family or a well-educated family, although they were quite, my, my, especially my father's side, were quite smart. So, you know, I think I always felt I wanted to succeed. I don't know if it's a trait. I just wanted to do well at everything. Um, and I don't know quite where that came from. <clears throat> I didn't have to win as such, but I want to do well. And in the workplace, one of the things I found, I, I didn't put my hand up once, and a man got the job, because mm. I didn't put my hand up, and I felt I'd been walked over. I never let that happen again. Um, so I think that, that, you know, some of these things you're born with, um, and some of these things, you know, and sometimes it's necessity. I mean, I went out to work to start with, and when I had children, went back to work, because we needed the money. It wasn't that, you know, I could just sort of say, OK, I'll stay at home, and I think I would have gone mad, actually, to be quite honest. I think my children would also agree that they were much better at home with a nanny than with me. Yeah. I, <laughs> you can ask my children, I think you would. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Do you, do you want to add to that? I just very quickly <clears throat> just want to add one thing, because I think it's really dangerous to use the word role models. Um, I, I don't know mm -hmm. the other guys, but I never see myself in that way. I do... Um, uh, my friend Yvonne Thompson has written his great book about real models and I think it's much more helpful because actually I think we're all very normal people so you talked about success I still don't see myself as a success I get through to every week and think I've survived every day is a survival I get through and think I've done today I've done three talks starting at the House of Lords but last night at midnight you know, I was having to worry about my son's costume for next week for his play having just got through World Book Day and just about you know, if Am thank God Amazon because all these mothers that make these handmade outfits um, you know for Die of a Wimpy Kid and Mr Bump and I look at them and I think really you know I'm still buying cakes for the bake sale and you know I don't, I don't know how she does I don't distress book, right? them I don't, I don't break them I don't pretend I still just I, don't, I now just say I've bought them but I look at these other mothers and just to feel like a total failure most of the time because I'm trying to do everything and um, so I think survival is one but the reason I've survived is I have the most amazing support team around me um, and the talks I give to young women I often say do not give up on your friendships because um, I've been around long enough that I've had a failed marriage I've had you know lost people close to me um, I've had to leave jobs because I just decided I couldn't do it anymore I hated it and in those moments it is that support team that will hold you together now I come from a really big extended family I'd include that in them but my mum my girlfriends you know so when my son woke up with chickenpox when he was nine months old and I was about to go on stage with 500 people with my new boss, the CEO, I called my mum and she was a head teacher for school and she said, don't worry, I'll go in four hours later. You know, so there will be crises in your life and you, you just need people around you. So I'd say have an amazing support team. Mm. And Elizabeth? I would say just stay positive. Don't let yourself get down. Um, 
you know, um, you know, some people use the kind of comparison half glass full or half empty. So just always try to think there's something else. And also keep something in your life which keeps you going. So for me, it's music, for example, Sunday evenings singing in the choir or listening to some nice music at home. So find whatever you can do. I went swimming um, uh, this morning, so sometimes it's exactly go for a swim. I remember after the referendum of vote, I was so upset. I just went into the pool at 6 o'clock in the morning. So because I just thought I can't look at any new stuff. So just, you know, whatever you can find, and it's hard when, you know, I've raised four children, so there was little time to do something. But just carve out a little time where you might do something you enjoy. So for those of you in the room who like scientific evidence, one of the things that comes through is the ability to fail as mm, people who, are, who yeah. succeed. So the ability to put yeah. yourself forward, get told no, put yourself forward mm. again, get told no, put yourself forward mm. again. Good so I, for me, I think that's a mm. trick. That's yeah. really important. Um, so everyday sexism. Gosh. I, so the thing I would say is that I think it's really important that not just women but men call it out. I think it's much mm. more powerful when um, an ally, whether that's if you're straight and you're calling it out for an LGBT peer or colleague or friend, um, or if you're white and you're calling it out for someone from a BAME background, so it's not just about gender. So I think it's more powerful. But I think as a woman it's particularly hard. You, you, can, you, you walk this really tight line of not being seen as a bra-burning psycho, frankly. Um, and, you know, there are men that roll their eyes and, oh, God, it's banter. That's all I meant was a bit of banter. And, of course, it's not banter. It, it is sexism, and it is directly discriminatory, and it's illegal. Um, but I think you have to still work in that environment, and you have to be able to maintain your relationship. So I always say to people, start gently with a way that doesn't expose someone in a public embarrassing way, which is just to say, can I just point out, I'm sure you meant nothing, I'm sure your intention was positive, but when you said X, it made me feel quite uncomfortable. So talk about the impact on you rather than making the other person feel bad, and then do it again and do it again. And if it doesn't stop, then I think you escalate it through your organisation because there's clearly a pattern. Um, but I, I, I tend to love using this. If someone does it to me a lot in meetings, I say, Chairman, thank you so much for mansplaining that to me, and they don't do it again. <laughs> I'm going to excuse Michael. Oh, okay. I do apologise, but I've actually got to go to another event. <laughs> um, so I'm going to leave you in the break. Yeah. I do apologise, and it was lovely to be with you all. I'll just sneak off. Of course. Just to add to Pavita's point, I think it's a really hard thing to do, obviously, when you're a junior in an organisation. And the advice I would give you, try to also speak to somebody informally, whether that is somebody in a different part of the organisation or in a different organisation, to just get advice and to make sure you know you can have an you know a really objective um, objective advice and honestly if it doesn't change um, you have to go I mean then try to you know go somewhere else find an organisation to Bronwyn's point if you're not having fun I suffered far too long working for um, you know a boss who for example when I had twins sort of. I'm sure rolled his eyes, I mean, not in front of me, but I'm sure on the other phone off the phone line. So when he said, I was on a phone six months after my twins were born, and he said, um, your oldest is how old? I said five. Oh, yes, so he would be at school. Second one, um, three, oh, yes, he would have started nursery school. And then you have a nanny, don't you? So what's the problem? Why can't you come back full time? I should have absolutely left and gone to another team, and I suffered for another couple of years before because I just sort of didn't want to upset the apple card, and I've sort of learned, you know, cut your losses and then just look for somebody, for another team. Hopefully you can stay with the firm unless it's an endemic thing 
within the firm. It's a, it's a really hard thing to do, but I would say don't suffer um, because it's not worth it. Because, you know, it's important to love what you do and not get, you know, sort of let down by it. So. I think Pavita made a good point, though. You've got to be careful how you handle these things, and it's best if you take the person aside somewhere and mm. say, if it's really worrying you. If it's really small, you know, it happens all the time. Just ignore it. Mm. You know, if you can ignore it. I, I just think that sometimes it's, it's you know, it, it's more... It depends whether you think it's a problem or not, but otherwise, mm. yeah, you get out of there. Find somewhere else. So we had the last question. We yeah, returnships at work. Actually, Yvonne, um, earlier this week, and I was actually, no, last week, I was um, asked by somebody at the bank, on um, very short notice, would I speak to a um, young woman who had um, come on a return, um, sort of uh, returnship to work program and was interviewing for a role. And I really didn't have any time, but I just carved out some time to speak to her because she was going for a job within the Bank of England. And so I think it's a terrific thing. I, I wished it had existed when I, I had been, I was on maternity leave um, because I think it's a wonderful way to kind of bring people back in the workforce, in the workforce into the workforce. And now that hopefully there's also the ability for men to take paternity leave, I would hope you know, that there are different types of programs to give all parents the ability to take sabbaticals, to take time off. And I, again, I've seen this certainly more in the public sector than in, in the private sector, because it's difficult both for men and women to um, raise a family. And it could also be to look after a parent, you know, to look after a sick relative, somebody with mental health issues. So I think it's a really important Thing. Um, perhaps we'll deal with fintech separately, right, in case Bronwyn wants to add something. Yeah, just to say, I think it's easier in big companies, and big companies should do more of it. Um, I think it's harder in small companies. Um, you know, when you... Uh, even in big companies, I had a team of... Well, of, uh, and there were more women in it than, uh, you know, other teams I noticed in other banks, and... Of course, they all went off on maternity leave, didn't they? And so it was really hard work to sort of, you know, they came, some came back, some didn't. But I do think it's a really good thing to do, but it can be much more disruptive for a small company. So you've got to think about that. I mean, my daughter, who's had two children in, well, nearly two years, not quite, um, took four and a half months off and went back. Um, and maybe she had the example. <laughs> Better to go back to work. I'm not sure. But I think it's important that those opportunities exist. You've trained all these people. Companies have spent money on you. And I just think it's really... And it helps you as well to go back like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great thing. Um, and, and it's just, as I say, it can be disruptive. The off can be disruptive if it's a smaller company. And fintech? Fintech, I mean, I would hope it creates opportunities um, for women or, you know, all, all kinds of different people because um, being, you know, entrepreneur, running your own company, I've actually never had the wish to run my own company. Um, so it's the one thing I sort of never really wanted to do, but I've certainly spoken to people who've started their own companies and they felt it gave them kind of more freedom. So if you think of um, what's the, 
the name of the lady who runs Mumsnet, for example, she wrote, she's written quite a bit in the FT and other places about how she started her company and how she employs different people. So again, you could say perhaps it's not fintech. So perhaps your question is more about, you know, being being very, you know, IT um, sort of versatile. But um, I would hope again, perhaps comes back to the point. I do think women aren't worse at IT or maths or something. It's just about you know, and it perhaps goes back to school and to the choices people make early on in life. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, studying STEM um, subjects and, and encouraging people to, to study. But I would hope it's an opportunity rather than a threat. But I, I have heard the point that perhaps, you know, it means that people who are more sort of in terms of the techie kind of subjects might do better. I don't know, Bronwyn, whether you have other... I just think not enough people do the STEM subjects Mm -hmm. and there are even fewer women uh, doing economics um, because it's become more mathematical and uh, so we're not getting enough enough women through doing these subjects so of course you'll end up in fintech with with the people who've qualified. I'm very disappointed in economics. I know we're it's a sort of off the subject. I'm really disappointed mm-hmm. because it's much easier to... I mean, I met the woman who, who actually piloted the first Qantas plane that went 20 hours to Australia to, you know, and, and she goes around talking about what she does, you know. Isn't it, you know, I can understand women wanting to do that because um, and, 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 they can see a role model there. But fintech, it's, you know, it's IT, it's people that, you know, sort of sit like this and do this and have great, some people have great ideas, but it's, I think it's, um, you know, you've got to have something that attracts you to it and, and women, I think, are much more about having something that they're attracted to. So just not, not the numbers. There are just not the numbers going through. I, I will take the opportunity to um, mention a book by Emily Chung called Brotopia, and in it she speaks about the first coders who actually were female. And then the way the coding, the environment was organised, women sorted out and more men sorted in. So there does seem to be something about the way the culture is organised in tech that stops females sorting into it. And some of the problem is, as Roman has just mentioned, when we get kids out of their A-levels in the UK, they're not really choosing computer science. So it's about 2080 at the moment, the same as engineering. And I think for some parts of finance, like trade finance, for example, this is going to be quite problematic because all of the innovation that fintech can bring to the table, if women aren't there designing it, is it going to, and females of the users on the other side, is it going to get us where we want to go? So I want to take, um, we've run out of time, but I want to take the last moment to allow my both remaining panellists to maybe give one, two last sentences about what they would like to see in the, last, in the next ten years or their lessons from the last ten years gone by. Uh, so, Bronwyn, thank you. In the next ten years. Well, I'd like to get further than I think we have since 1990 when you know, we looked at what the women at Deutsche Bank were saying at that time. I think it's taken a long time to get to here. I I do think there is real momentum behind it now. So I I think we will be much further, but I do think it's a problem, you know, chair women rather than chair men. So we still have these issues with the way people think. And I just want to take a second to say... um, I was terribly depressed when I read Chapter 3 of Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And the reason I was depressed is because they took a 
case study from Harvard Business School to New York University and Columbia. Two different sets of students, both male and female in both classes. It was a, about a really successful woman entrepreneur um, and they just changed the name for one set of students and made him a man. And the woman and the other one, you know this story. They all thought the man was, you know, someone they want to work for, or aggressive, you know. No, no, that's not the right word, is it? You know, out there. The woman was aggressive, not someone they want to work for, and so on. The traits were exactly the same. So I think if we can, we need to break that down, and I think actually forcing... The KPIs, I think, are really important because it just brings it out there. And so once you do that, you get more women, black, whatever, up there, then people get used to it. So that's one thing. And just one more thing I want to say is, um, and it comes down to something Elizabeth said. My husband used to, I used to drive him crazy because I'd take on these new roles and some of them were quite challenging and were way out of my comfort zone, like the Bloomberg job, but I had others like that. And he said, the first six months with you are always terrible. He said, you don't think you can do the job, you're you know, worried about it, you're this, you're that. He said, if we could just st- skip the first six months until you get to the point where, yeah, yeah, it's all right, it's, it's relatively easy, I've got it under control, that would be great. And I think that is very much... You know, everybody finds these things often. So it's not... You're not alone, I think, is what I want to say when that happens. You go into a new job, it's tough. Um, If you go into a new job where you're senior with lots of people working for you, it's tougher um, because, you know, trying to make sure you're doing all the right things is hard. And on top of that, you have the culture of whatever the company happens to be. Um, What I'd like to see um, is... Definitely, in terms of the executive pipeline, um, that um, you know it would do as well in terms of increasing numbers. If we're just talking about for now gender diversity, as the non-executive pipeline has done. So, thankfully, the UK didn't need quotas. Uh, sort of at least on the non-executive side, work with targets. I would hope that we would not need quotas and that um, nobody would even blink an eyelid, and they would realise that there are plenty of candidates there who can do the job. So still now in Germany, people think, um, you know, clearly there is a lack of, you know, good candidates, and if you, you know, you, you can't find enough qualified candidates, and there's still others in the room now, there are plenty of them around. Sometimes you just need to look harder for them. So I would hope that, you know, that misconception has gone, um, and then coming back to the point raised uh, earlier, I think it was Gillian, um, female chairs, I would hope that it's not, it's sort of, you know, we probably won't get to 50-50, and I don't think necessarily that it needs to be that, but that it's not unusual to have a female chair. So I have, so female chair on one of my boards, actually LSE now has female chair of court and council and a female director. I think it's the first time in the history of the LSE. And I've learned a massive amount um, from female chairs. And they're fantastic male chairs, too. But I have actually found that the dynamics, and I've worked under, certainly in my time as on court and council at the LSE, I've worked with three or four different ones, and it's a very different style. And, again, it could be a male 
chairing very differently. But I do think it just brings a different dynamic to the discussion. So I, I would hope that the numbers of female chairs um, will move up. Excellent. So I'll say, I hired the female chair of the LSE. Yes, you did. Yes, I chaired the committee that hired her. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. So on that note, can we thank our speakers and I wish you a happy International Women's